This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Transit, the cost of transit, the implications it's going to have on you and me, even if you have never got on a bus. You're paying for it with property taxes. And then there's the specter of LRT and the ongoing discussions that are happening there. And the uh, the letter from Metrolinx in the province yesterday that essentially said, sure, if you want the ATU to take over operation and maintenance of uh, the LRT, you go ahead and do that, but it's going to cost you an awful lot more money. Now we find out that because of some of the things that have happened in the last few months, the LRT project is actually behind schedule. Should we be concerned about this? Lloyd Ferguson has been a, a proponent of the LRT project from day one. He's the counselor for Ward 12 in Ancaster, of course. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm great, Bill. First of all, I want to apologize. I'm on my cell phone. I'm heading to a 930 appointment, so I hope I'm clear enough. So far, so good. Uh, we'll kind of work on that. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the delay element, and then we'll get into the costing and things of this nature as well. Uh, report that uh, suggests that City Council needs to be concerned about the fact that you're falling behind schedule. Now we're hearing that some of these uh, requests that had to be uh, sent out are not going to happen in this calendar year, which is going to push everything back. Are you concerned? Yeah, I am. It's, it's, uh, it, I know some of my colleagues will disagree with me, but it's always risky when you go into election cycles, particularly when there's a billion dollars involved. And, uh, you know, sometimes the difference between promises made and promises kept, uh, if governments change and, and what they do with their strategies, and, of course, they'll always push the button that the previous government left the books worse than what they expected. And so it's at risk. And, and right from the start of this process, um, you know, I sit on the LRT steering committee, and I kept standing on staff to prepare a Gantt chart and, and let's measure it every month how we're doing to make sure we can get this RFP closed and hopefully awarded before the, um, the uh, next provincial election because it's the provincial election that's the biggest risk. And, uh, you know, if governments change, and I know Patrick Bound has made some public statements, but that happens a lot during election campaigns. And uh, so why take that risk was my theory. So the, we originally... Uh, we're right on schedule. Um, back in February of this year, we issued the request for what's called the RFQ, Request for Qualifications. And, and that closed in June. And so we have a list of consortiums who want to bid this, and there was quite a bit of interest in it also. And then right immediately we bumped into this resolution from, uh, from Councillor Green asking the uh, province to uh, take the operation maintenance out of the, out of the um MOU that we have. And we signed that MOU in March 2016. And quite frankly, if we're going to make that kind of change, the time to do it is before you sign the MOU. But, you know, it, it was interesting watching the debate on this. Uh, there was two clear camps that supported asking the province to do that. There was one camp that uh, were very um, uh, union-friendly, if you will, and uh, wanted to appease the, the transit workers. And I keep challenging right now, how'd that work out for you with all this problem with absenteeism going on with our regular HSR? And then there was a second camp, and as you know, it was a very divisive debate, the LRT. And uh, there's a second camp that still does not support the LRT and wanted to delay it to, uh, to maybe kill the project or get something different done with it. So that motion carried back in early summer. And then the province took you know, four or five months to make the decision. I, and quite frankly, I, I, I take my hat off to him. It was brilliant, the letter they sent back. They said, we're not going to make the decision. You make it. But if you do, here's the consequences. And there's some pretty severe consequences uh, and, and bigger risk on cost 
if in fact we take it back. And in addition to cost, you would have uh, the what's called Projeco or the successful consortium operator doing the maintenance, and then we have um, HSR running it. And of course, you're going to get into jurisdictional disputes and all the issues of two unions working with each other on the same system on a daily basis. So they've laid out all those risks in a letter to us, and now they've turned to council says by late January, make your decision. Do you want to take over the uh, the operations? They won't give us the maintenance, but take over the operations, or do you want to leave it the way it was proposed? Because if we, if we in fact, make the decision that we want to um, stay with the op- uh, uh, operations, we have to start all over again with the RFQ, which is another four-month delay. So we're already delayed to the point where this thing cannot be awarded before the next two, uh, the next provincial election. It's past that, that threshold because it's a year from the time you issue RFP to you get financial close. So if we went out in June, uh, like we expected to do, uh, June of 2017, it would be June 2018, which is just before the next provincial election, we would hopefully have closed. And that was the plan. That was the strategy to avoid that risk for the last number of months. But that got thrown into a tailspin with that resolution in July. And and listen, we know how governments can respond. Um, and we saw that happen back in 1991 when you know the NDP got elected here in the province of Ontario and, and uh, turned around and, of course, cut the funding for the uh, the Red Hill Expressway at that time. Uh, which threw this city into a tizzy and ended up costing us millions of dollars more, of course, in additional cost. So governments, new governments, whatever political stripe, have that right to do that, uh, no matter what they say during the campaign. That's right. And, of course, there was only two of us. That's why I opposed this motion to ask the province to take it out of the MOU, because of the delay that would be created and the risk that would be uh, also put in front of us by doing that. But there was only two of us. I was Councillor Johnson and I. We're the only two that oppose asking the province that. And, and you know, a lot of people will argue with me, oh, there's no risk here at all. But why take any risk? Uh, but it is what it is now, and we're going to have to see what happens. Let me ask you about that and, and, and the risks involved, because there seems to be some discrepancy right now about, uh, for instance, that the, that cost of, of maintenance. And some are suggesting that, uh, that it was always understood that the city was going to have to t- assume that cost. I'm not so sure that was the case. What's what's your read on that? Oh, the operation and maintenance, where is the last hurdle that the that the city has to clear. It's the final approval, and you don't know that cost until the uh, the RFP closes. It's evaluated, and so staff will now probably come back to this. It might be the first decision of the new council back in January 2019 um, to actually know what that cost is. There's been lots of speculation. You know, in my view, terribly exaggerated on those that oppose it and terribly underestimated on those that don't. But you don't really know that number and, and until the proposals close and we see it in front of us. And, and that's when we can then do um, um, a final approval, the last hurdle that we have to clear. And so, um, uh, but we will, we will have fixed price. We'll then know the projected revenue from the... Um, from the fare box, and right now, uh, with the buses, about 47% of the cost of running the HSR comes from the fare box, and 53% comes from the tax base. Now, uh, on the road trip I took into Portland, Calgary, and Charlotte, they found that the cost per passenger was significantly less with LRT because the most expensive part of running a transit system is the individual in the driver's seat. And instead of moving 40, 50 people, you're moving 200 people. 
And so the cost per passenger comes down, plus the second most expensive part of running a, a transit system is fuel and running these trains on electricity versus um, natural gas or diesel is significantly less also. But we don't know that number, and I can't stress this enough. We won't know that number until the proposal's closed. We have a successful proponent, and then the numbers will be laid in front of us. But if past experience is anything, uh, whoever's going to be driving that LRT unit uh, is not going to make any less than the person that's driving the bus down the other street. Well, yeah, and, and of course, that's the interesting part. And I told this to the um, ATU when they came to see me about this. Every employee has the right to representation. All they got to do is vote to support it. And so when the private operator comes in, ATU has every right in the world to try to certify those operators, get them to sign the cards, have a vote, and if that's what they want, that's what will be put in place. That's a, a, a process that's been available to the workforce for d- decades, and, and, and they can follow that. But they're trying to take an easier route, which is getting council to force it on the province, who would then impose it on the uh, 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 design-build operator through Metrolinx, or we take that risk and, and um, you know, the chips fall where they may. And according to the experts at, at Metrolinx, is that the cost will be significantly higher. And there are some people that are, are you know, they're taking exception to that, but we'll talk with Eric, talk about that in just a little bit and see just what his read is on this as well. Let me ask you about potential partners, though, Lloyd, because now that we're heading back to square one as far as this process is concerned, uh, there's the obvious the idea of cost, and you've already touched on that. But with this change now that, uh, that looks like uh, that, that the ATU, the American Amalgamated Transit Union, is going to take over part of this operation right now, does that run the risk right now that some of these people that might have been interested in partnering this may not be so interested now? Well, that's why we have to reissue the RFQ. That's another four-month delay if council decides that, no, we want to keep it within HSR. And so we have to issue the RFQ because any of the operators that were part of those consortiums will then fall out because they're no longer required. And so there'll be the designer, the builder, the financer, and the maintainer that will now be part of the new consortiums. And, you know, as I said, we have a lot of interest in the first round with the RFQ and how many of those consortiums are going to drop out because we changed the rules. It costs money to put these things together. And when you back up after you go to the marketplace, that's not well received. They say, these guys can't make up their mind, so they go and bid another project instead. And that's another risk that we got to assess by if we make this decision. And with that in mind, as you mentioned, there's projects going on in Ottawa and Mississauga, some in Toronto right now as well. They're not married to Hamilton. They can go looking someplace else and, and spend their money there. Yeah, and of course, we, we should talk about Ottawa. In, in my previous life, I've responded to these um, requests for qualifications and requests for proposals. And, and I've responded, along with two other uh, very good partners, to the uh, uh, LRT in Ottawa back in, geez, I guess, 2005, 2006. And it turned out we were the successful proponent. And the city awarded it to us, went through an election cycle, and what happened? It got canceled at great expense. I mean, I think we're already into this thing for $75 million, which the city would have to assume if we kill it. But once you award a contract, there's a cost of buying the contract also. And so the council that they decided to cancel it and two years later, they changed their mind, and they're up there building it right now. And and so we need to learn from that experience also. Yeah, I was just up there this past weekend, obviously, for the Great Cup festivities. And uh, the great big hole in the ground there right in front of the Chateau Laurier Hotel tells us that they're way behind in that schedule. And, and we all know, of course, about the added costs into that, too. 
uh, and you know, you know, committing to something and then canceling it and then recommitting to it, uh, it costs an awful lot of money. I mean, our councils do that unfortunately all too often, and this one it looks like is going to be on our tab if we do this again. Well, in Ottawa, it was the result of an election cycle. A new council got elected and changed their mind. And uh, that may well happen here as well. Uh, not so well, much. Not so much at the. It's not so much at the. Yeah, exactly. You've got the provincial election, and then just a couple months after that, you've got the municipal election. So there's a possibility of change. You touched on something that we've talked about over the summer about intent and the people that that endorse this. And as you write, there there are some on Council Lloyd that are just uh, pro union, pro organized union, and. Uh, they they want to make sure that unionized workers get the best possible deal at all times, and I understand that. That's that's a philosophical point of view that that an awful lot of people on your council uh, aspire to, and I get that. But there are others that looked at this as a way to rag the puck and eventually kill this project by making it so expensive. Not unlike the people that that opposed the the expressway for many years, delay after delay after delay, and then of course they said, well, it's too costly to build right now. Do you get the sense that uh, that 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 is starting to gain some momentum on council? We'll find out tomorrow or Friday because uh, that was certainly the case when we voted on it back in July. And uh, it'd be fascinating to watch how, because, you know, times have changed and people's thoughts may change, may not also. But uh, I think we have this information in front of us now that this is going to cost you a lot more money and that may uh, cause some of my colleagues to have take pause on this. Well, there are, let's face it, uh, a, a, a number of people in this community right now that have some trepidation about this project right from square one. Uh, and they bought into it because the province said that, don't worry, we're going to cover the cost. You guys aren't going to be on the hook for anything. And little by little, bit by bit, that seems to be eroding. And now we're starting to get the idea that there are going to be some significant costs. And I don't need to remind you, Lloyd, and in just a few months, you and your colleagues are going to be knocking on doors and you're going to get an earful from people. Well, exactly, but it won't cost us anymore if we just stay the course, go with the original MOU. This is the main reason why I come on side. How can I kick a billion dollars back to Toronto? And this is a way to reform the city. Is it controversial? Absolutely. Is it risky for me in my community? Maybe. And we'll find that out in the campaign coming up in the fall. But uh, right now, and your listeners need to know that if we just stay the course with the design, build, finance, maintain, operate, it still won't cost us anything. And, and that'll only change if we decide to take on this risk. Do you get the sense, though, at this meeting uh, later on this week that, that there's a will on council to maintain the status quo? I kind of get the sense that they're going off in a different direction here. I can't tell you. I haven't been, I've been buried in meetings, haven't had a chance to talk to uh, some council colleagues. Lloyd Ferguson, City Council for Ward 12 out in Ancaster. <laughs> Lloyd, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. As Councillor Lloyd Ferguson told us, uh, City Council, well, the committee anyway, is going to meet later on this week and talk about uh, this latest wrinkle in LRT after weeks and weeks of waiting for the uh, folks from the province and Metrolinks to respond to the uh, City Council request to have the Amalgamated Transit Union uh, running the uh, the show with LRT. They kind of half-heartedly said, yeah, go ahead and do it, but it's going to cost a lot more than you guys think it is. Well, the union has responded to this. Eric Tuck is the president of the ATU Local 107, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Eric, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Bill. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, sir? Excellent. Let's talk a little bit about the letter and and, and your feelings and and your union representative's feelings on this. Uh, it was It's kind of a backhanded way that said, yeah, go ahead and do this if you want, but we don't really think you guys understand exactly what you're getting into. Is, is that a fair characterization of the letter that Metrolink sent? 
Yes, I would say so, Bill. Uh, the reality is that uh, the tone of the letter and the way it's written, um, in, implying that there's going to be all these extra costs, um, we know for a fact that it's going to cost run, uh, cost money to run the LRT. We're not naive enough to believe that Metrolinx uh, or the private consortium is going to offer that uh, operations for free. The reality is Hamiltonians are going to pay for the operational costs of the LRT that those costs are going to be borne by the people who use it and put money in the fare box. For the, uh, the provincial government and, and Metrolink to issue a letter uh, which really says, hey, uh, we'll give you, uh, take what we give you and be grateful for it or else, uh, that attitude uh, doesn't work in negotiation. This is supposed to be negotiations between Metrolink and the city uh, that is provided for in the memorandum of agreement. So we're urging the province, we're urging Metrolinx to sit down with the city and have some sincere, sincere negotiations on how we can have the best transit system possible. That memorandum of agreement uh, laid out the, the terms, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, Eric. And one of the clauses, I know you included it in your letter from uh, from the union, right. says the determination of who will operate and maintain the vehicles and be responsible for certain matters ancillary thereto, including maintenance and operating costs, will be determined at a later date and included in future definitive agreements. So how can they tell us that it's going to cost an awful lot more if they don't know how much it's going to cost yet? Correct, Bill. The reality is we know it's going to cost us. Uh, you know, for them to continue to, to hold cost over our heads. Uh, there's one taxpayer in this country, uh, whether it's a federal, provincial, or municipal taxpayer, the taxpayers put the bill for everything we receive. Uh, we're saying, and we've sent a clear message, uh, our allies and our passengers have all sent a clear message that in Hamilton we want to maintain a good, healthy, world-class transit system that is kept under the public realm, which means publicly operated and publicly maintained. We realize there's a cost associated with that, and we're prepared to pay the appropriate cost to make that happen so that we ensure our safety and our local control over that transit system. Is City Council on side with that about assuming those costs? I would certainly hope that they're on side. At, at the end of the day, we're going to pay the bill. Uh, you know, nobody should be naive enough to believe that this is a gift that you're not going to pay for. Uh, it's been proven time and time again, privatization costs more money, and we end up with less service uh, at a more costly uh, incurrence. All you got to do is, we got lots of examples. Look to York Region, where that system's been completely privatized. A ride on the, the York Regional Transit System now is $4.40. Uh, we know that those who, many, many who depend on uh, public transit can only afford to pay uh, minimal amounts of money to get back and forth to work or to where they need to go, their health appointments. We got a lot of seniors, a lot of students. Uh, and part of providing a public transit system, just like public health or public education or public housing, there's a cost associated with that. But it's much less than if we privatize. If we privatize, the cost is much more. It's been proven time and time again. Uh, we got lots of examples right here in Hamilton. You don't have to look far. What about the other projects that are going on around the province right now? What, what kind of a, a ratio do they have? So uh, we're actually trying to set the trend right here in Hamilton, uh, you know, so that we can keep transit public right across the province. We, we've expanded our campaign into uh, Brampton, Mississauga, Toronto, uh, to ensure that public transit 
right across the province is kept public and is maintained uh, because we know people can't afford the higher cost of, an, of a privatized pub, uh, transit system. The cost is much more. Let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. From your experience with your union membership here, Eric, let's talk about some of the statistics that council are dealing with right now. And with the existing transit system, ridership is down right now. Some councillors are suggesting that there should be no cost for for people to get on public transit these days. I'm not so sure that there's a lot of support for that, but it's it's being floated out there once again. How do you try to increase ridership? I mean, the only way that this thing is, is going to flourish is if you get more people wanting to use public transit. So to ensure you, you increase ridership and attract ridership, uh, you have to have certain things in place. You have to, first of all, you've got a system that's been underfunded for over 20 years. That's the reality that we're dealing with. Um, you have to ensure that that bus shows up every single day and it shows up on time. It has to be a dependable service. You have to know, uh, be able to, it's got to be on time so that you can depend on it to get to your job. We have situations now where uh, missed service is a regular occurrence. And that is the direct result of underfunding and under uh, uh, utilization of a proper transit system. The resources have just not been put in place. Uh, we're hopeful that the LRT is going to help contribute to solving some of those problems, but we want it done in a responsible way uh, that's going to ensure that the public will have a long-term uh, benefit from that. Well, let's talk about the commitment on City Council's part to do this. And we have to, to look at this in the broader context as well. I mean, you know, it's one thing for the uh, for the ATU to say that we're committed to doing that, but, I mean, you're not going to pay for that. The city's going to pay for that. It's City Council that's going to ultimately fund these decisions right now. Uh, they're throwing money at transit, and, th- and to their credit, more than they have in the last number of years. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm happy that they're doing that, but we're not getting the results right now. There's a disconnect here someplace. You're correct, Bill. The resources, to, and, and the reality is that they've had a lot of senior management changes. And, uh, you know, that's not the sole reason, but it's certainly contributing. When you have people in charge of a transit system that don't have the experience and the knowledge to make sure that that transit hits the road every day. Um, you know, we, under the previous management that we had here, uh, the service was getting out and on the road every day. That's a fact. So you feel that, that right now there's a problem in, in administration? Uh, I think we've had a lot of changes, and we're going through a period of experience, learning how to, how to fix these problems that they're, they're not familiar with. Let's assume for a second, Eric, that the city, uh, the council that is, uh, agrees and, and endorses this idea and says, okay, we're in on this now. The province has given us an okay. They, they're not very crazy about doing it. And there wasn't a, 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 much of a, a show of support here. But moving forward on that, how do you work with the city right now to make this work, i.e. business plans and things of this nature? Do you let them do all the that, that work and that preparation, or do you want to have a seat at the table as that goes forward? I would certainly appreciate a seat at the table. As you, you know, as the experts in transit in this city for over 120 years, uh, we should be involved in the planning and the exercising of bringing in an efficient uh, LRT system that's going to run. And we should have some input into fixing the current system, uh, which we've been trying desperately to get people to listen to. Are you, uh, just an email here from Dave, who's listening to our conversation here, bkelly900chml.com. Anybody can reach us by email with their questions or comments uh, during the conversation. Uh, Dave is asking, is the union actually in favor of LRT? Because he seems to recall there's a time when they had uh, your union uh, did not favor this right now, uh, and they seem to have done an about-face on this. Uh, now, there are some people on city council that 
have been quite frank in their comments and say they're not supportive of this, but they're going to go along with it because they don't want to rock the boat. Uh, is the union strongly on side with LRT? So the union has taken the position from day one that the type of transit the city has is a decision for the citizens who pay for that service uh, to make the decision. So we've uh, purposely kind of stayed out of that debate. Uh, I can give you my personal opinions and the opinions of my members, uh, which is simply that if you're only looking at transit, uh, LRT is not necessarily the best solution. But if you're looking at the bigger picture, which we believe uh, the, the council is doing, and rightfully so, uh, if you're looking at investment, if you're looking at uh, the economics of it, an LRT makes perfect sense. Uh, and you're addressing some of the transit needs as well. So uh, for those purposes, council has made the decision and the citizens of Hamilton have made the decision that LRT is the choice they want to go forward with. All we're saying is if we're going to go forward with LRT, let's make sure that we get the best deal we can to ensure that we have the best transit system. But on the other side of that coin, if there's a change in provincial government, for instance, and they say, yeah, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore, you'd be okay with that too then? You know what? Transit needs to be addressed in the city of Hamilton. I believe the economic spinoff of the LRT is beneficial for this city. I think it makes good sense for development purposes of this city to go with LRT. But if the government of the day changes their decision, if the citizens that voted for the government change their decision and want to go with a rapid bus system, then we're okay with that too. We're not uh, influencing the decision either way. We believe that's something that needs to be decided by the people who use the system. Again, let's let's move down the road of 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 this agreement and this partnership actually uh, being struck, and, and the city council and the LRT uh, project, and of course the ATU all involved in this and, and planning in this right now. Uh, and and we cut the ribbon on this thing, Eric, uh, and and your staff, your union members, are now staffing and and operating the LRT system right now. Uh, but there are still members of your union, of course, that are driving buses. Uh, do they get paid the same, whether they're driving an LRT or a bus, or is there a difference in pay scale? So these are all things that have to be worked out, uh, obviously, in the negotiations. If it's a private operator, then certainly that would be a different discussion. Um, our, our concern is that there is no real discussion taking place right now. We need to have those negotiations moving forward if this project is to get off the ground. So you, uh, I guess, would, would suggest that's to be determined then, as when it comes down to union contracts and, and pay scales and things of this nature. Correct. One of the, one of the big concerns that we have and have always had is with private operators uh, ensuring that your workers are receiving a pension. Uh, we know that most private uh, operators, one of the first things they don't do is they don't give a pension. They don't give health benefits. It's difficult to negotiate with a private operator because of the uh, fact that they they bid on a, a job and they put in the lowest bid. Uh, their expectations is to uh, meet the profit goals and not necessarily the well-being of the employees that they hire. Eric, some of the councillors uh, in anticipation of this meeting have already brought up an issue that you and I discussed a few weeks ago, and that, of course, is the report that talked about rampant uh, absenteeism and, and, and people that are calling in sick uh, for a variety of reasons right now. And, and you've talked already about how that's resulted in poorer service and, and the cancellation of some bus lines right now. Some skeptics are looking at that and saying, how can we possibly partner with the ATU on this? Because they can't even get their job done with the current system. 
So again, Bill, I would suggest that that was poor planning on the part of the the management team. Uh, As you know, we had a balloon of hiring going on during the mid-80s to late-80s, where we had to hire a lot of drivers. Those drivers are are aging. Uh, That's over 30 years ago. A lot of them are getting ready for retirement. They get sicker as they get older, especially when you're working 65, 70, or uh, 68 hours a week. Um, so we've been under tremendous pressure to work long hours, uh, way beyond the normal 40-hour work week. Um, and you're going to have higher absenteeism. You also have to look at a number of other factors that have come in in the last few years. We've hired more women as bus operators. The reality is that women do take maternity leave. Uh, they're entitled to under law. That's legislated leave. Uh, we now have uh, about 3.5% uh, on legislated leads. Uh, that, that's impacting our attendance. Uh, that has to be planned for. Uh, retirements have to be planned for. Aging workforces have to be planned for. It, it's just poor planning over the long term. And, and again, I'm not pointing the finger at any one individual. Uh, when you have a management team that uh, does proper planning and advanced planning for these things, uh, you can somewhat control the absenteeism and the level of, uh, of uh, pressure you're putting on your workers. Eric Tuck, uh, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. It's appreciated. We'll uh, talk again soon, I'm sure, after that uh, committee meeting uh, later on this week. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Day two of the band cold, and uh, we're doing the best to slay through this. And to his credit, uh, Chief of Police Eric Tuck has uh, braved the uh, German-fested studio here. And... Uh, well, they said police was going to be tough, and you knew this was going to happen at some point. Yeah. Anyway, he's here for the Chiefs Town Hall. Law enforcement here in this community about police budgets. That's certainly coming up pretty soon. To that point, by the way, you've already had some meetings with the city staff about uh, the 2018 budget, haven't you? Uh, not the 2018 budget, but the capital uh, projections yeah. Yeah. to 2025. So, again, they're projections. Obviously, coming up next year, they're more firm, but on the horizon. And this is the thing that's kind of misunderstood. We've got, uh, you know, in 2025, Station 4. Well, that's a potential, and we have to look at both the demographics in the city, the growth, and then look at servicing to the community. So it's not passed yet, but we have to be proactive to say this is on the horizon. Well, the the mountain station that I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of, of course, up on Rymel Road uh, at Turner Park, uh, serves not just Hamilton Mountain, but it also serves Ancaster, uh, Dundas, Flamborough, Flamborough, all the way to Cambridge almost. Correct. That's, That's a big area to cover. It is a big area, and I remember when they were determining, I know it was Superintendent Sullivan that was in charge of that project, um, looking at where's the best location for growth in the city. And as we know, El Frida is, uh, you know, number two on the priority list for the city in terms of growth, which is, you know, close to Highway 20 and 53. Uh, but, you know, in Waterdown as well, it's expanding dramatically. So we'll have to determine where the best location is at that point. But with... Uh, you know, the mountain station being at Turner Park, it's fairly close to uh, El Frida. Uh, it may end up, in fact, in Flamborough or Waterdown. We don't know yet. When uh, they had the old police station on Upper Wellington at Inverness uh, that was there for years and years and years, of course, uh, it, it got so crowded and overcrowded, of course, at that particular location. I know you know about this. That yep. used to hold parade in the garage, I guess, uh, with yep. all the trucks and motorcycles. That's and, right. Uh, people were crawling all over each other. Then you built this thing up at Turner Park, and it was sort of state-of-the-art. And with this is great. Look at all the space. Now we can do this thing. Uh, I was up there a few months ago uh, meeting with Myra James, a good friend of uh, mm-hmm. Rebecca's and, and of mine, and uh, it's getting pretty crowded up there too. Well, and that's what happens. As you know, on the horizon, we've got the Investigative Services Division uh, building 
both for space and the forensics facility. So that will ease some of that congestion. Uh, but we've done the studies and we're basically still at capacity. It doesn't have any extra capacity. Uh, so on the horizon, we have to look at, you know, the population growth in Hamilton. And the projections are good. I mean, that's all a positive news story because we're having both buildings being done and, and increasing people moving here. So uh, we want it to be properly serviced. With the uh, the location being at Turner Park and Hey, I take an extreme example right now where if there's a 911 call or a call for service, whatever the case might be, in uh, it could be any place up in the Waterdown or Flamborough area right now, response times are obviously a factor, just as they are for for uh, paramedics and things of this nature too. Is, is that a, a problem? Is it a concern, a challenge for you? Uh, it can be, but so I'm just going to talk about paramedics for a minute. I have pre-warned them that you do, in fact, have a man cold, and we've uh, <laughs> if they get a call from you that they're not going to respond here and oh, take yeah. it hospital, just so you know. Um, but no, response times are always... I've got Mario Pastorero, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm just trying to use resources appropriately. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Spoken like a manager. <laughs> no, uh, response times are, are always critical, and as you know in the rural areas... Uh, presence there is very important. We do a breakdown of calls for service, uh, both by time and number, and obviously time is a critical factor. Um, so we've got to look at what the needs are in the community, and uh, often in the rural areas, we're not getting the same calls for service, but obviously uh, the residents still want to see uh, police out there and doing a patrol. Traffic's always a huge concern. So yes, we have to look at that full service. Anyway, that's that's capital budget talking. You go through the same process, I would imagine, that the city does, where you have a list of priorities, and this is what you'd like to do, and you've got one or two that uh, are going to move up, and obviously the Forensic Center is going to be part of that. Yeah, and that went through, um, uh, it got approved by council, as you know, and then we're funding it out of the operating budget as well. Uh, so that's all been kind of the details have been worked out. Uh, so we're looking forward to probably uh, shovels in the ground, hopefully as soon as possible, and get rolling on that and uh, better serve uh, in terms of the forensic requirements and the space needs for our people. So really looking forward to that project. Uh, let's talk a little bit about body cameras. I know it came up at the Police Services Board meeting a little while ago. Uh, you've been pretty outspoken about about this, and, and if I can characterize it correctly, Chief, you seem to be saying we're not there yet. Is, is that a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment, and I think what we did, uh, because Toronto took the lead on that, but a couple of other uh, large police services in Canada, and with our requirements with the weather, battery life, um, uh, reliability of the cameras and equipment, uh, it's very complex both in terms of redaction, uh, uh, freedom of information issues, when you enter a house, if you've got children present, how does that work if you're taping inside a domestic scene, the right to uh, people's privacy uh, without warrants. Uh, it is complex, um, and the problem is we're not seeing a consistent uh, agreement in terms of the academic research that says this will definitely lead to reduction in com police complaints and reduction in use of force. And again, it's kind of like the taxi cameras in a sense. Um, if I'm just capturing an incident, that's really not my intent. Uh, our intent, is certainly with conducted energy weapons, was to de decrease the potential for use of force, decrease or increase the level of de-escalation. Um, we're not seeing that in terms of the research with body-worn cameras, you know, that it has a positive effect to reduce those use of force incidents, either by the officers or by members of the public. So we have to take a thoughtful approach. It is a large expense. And it requires uh, quite a bit of uh, digital uh, equipment to uh, carry it out. I, I, listen, I haven't done nearly as much research on this, obviously, as you have, Chief. But just from what we've seen on, on newscasts, et cetera, and when there have been some incidents, and of course most of them in U.S. jurisdictions where they, they may wear these cameras, I, I don't know that they're that reliable. 
Um, I mean, because obviously, if you're wearing something on your on your chest, on your 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 your, your vest in a situation like this, uh, the camera's only going to go where you're looking. And and if there's something happening off to your right uh, that may have been a factor in what happened or how the officer responded, you don't see that. Uh, and then there have been the incidents, and we've all seen that on some of the newscasts, where, where there's a, a quote-unquote uh, you know, video evidence of something that occurred, and all of a sudden the camera cuts out. And, uh, the, you know, wow, did the cop do that on purpose? Or, well, no, sometimes it's just a technical glitch. So, again, you have to wish, wish, watch what you wish for. I'm not so sure that, that the technology is reliable as you'd want it to be. Yeah, and you've hit the mark there, Bill. That's definitely the case. Uh, the analogy I use is when you're, you're watching TV, um, try and think about you know, what the film editor is doing. So you're seeing multiple camera angles. You've got close-ups, switching to panoramic view, switching to a distance shot, switching to alternate, they call it a two-camera position where you see the one person speaking, it flips over to the other person. That's not how body-worn cameras work, and you just talked about it. If I am looking left, but my camera is pointing forward, it may not, in fact, cover what I'm looking at. Or, uh, alternately, if the camera has better um, facility than I do as a human being, in other words, the resolution uh, field of vision, then it may not be seeing what I'm seeing. So these are some of the limitations, but when you think about watching a movie or something, you know, pay attention to the editorial. I mean, they win Oscar for these type of things, right, film editing? Um, it requires a lot of cameras to get that composition. Uh, we just watched the Pulse nightclub shooting, for example. Uh, the um, sheriff came down, um, as well as the chief and uh, the ER physician, and watching that with, there must have been 30 or 40 cameras involved. Sometimes you had to turn your head sideways because of the position of the officer to figure out what was going on from the field of view. So, And also, you saw the limitations, particularly where they entered the premise with uh, the, the lead team that went in to confront the suspect, and it's all dark, and there's lights flashing, and you can't even tell what the heck is going on. So, I mean, it gives you the perspective of how disorienting that can be, but at the same time, it's not a Hollywood production. To your phone calls for Chief of Police Eric Gert, 905-645-3221, star 9900, email bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Uh, to uh, Frank, I guess, as we start off our phone calls here. Hey, Frank, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, thank you. Uh, good morning, uh, gentlemen. Uh, b- before we start, uh, uh, Bill, um, uh, lots of uh, vitamin E, orange juice, and for God's sake, <laughs> keep the, the uh, vodka out of it, eh? Now, I'm with you, you Chief. By the way, Bill, you uh, stole my thunder here. I wanted to ask about the cameras. No, go ahead. Go but, ahead, uh, Frank. You, you gave a good script there. But, Chief, where are cameras, body cameras, used by police force somewhere in North America or in the world that have proven to be an asset um, and have uh, justified the cost? We, I'm gonna, I have an appointment just coming up. I'm going to hang up, and I appreciate you giving me a, a good answer there, please. Sure. Thank go you. ahead, Frank. I'll let you go, and you can listen on the radio. Yeah, and it really varies by jurisdiction and also through the course of time. This is what we're finding in the research. There's nothing that definitive. And in fact, uh, Rialto, California, where it was introduced um, and became kind of the, the lead agency. Well, it was a small agency. Um, you have to look at comparators that are similar in size. You have to look at the demographics, um, the type of complaints. For example, uh, you know, over 300,000 calls that we respond to, we had 11 use of force complaints. Well, when you look at the percentage, that's a pretty small percentage. And we have, again, in Canada, particularly in Ontario, uh, a tremendous amount of oversight. We do have investigations. The states, in particular, is just starting to catch up with that. We've been running the Special Investigation Unit for years. 
And the other thing is there's uh, all kinds of alternate sources for video as well between uh, video cameras and businesses, uh, home residences, uh, GoPros, uh, people's cell phones. Um, so uh, the video evidence is prevalent already. And in fact, that's one of the things on our capital budget is to handle, uh, I call it the digital tidal wave of video evidence that we have. And we have to sort through all that stuff. So uh, relative to your question, there's nothing that's been that definitive. Uh, relative to the Canadian context, uh, Calgary, Toronto, Winnipeg have all introduced, RCMP and some limited, and we looked at all those. It's, uh, you can actually go online to our website, and in that board report, we provide that research and what its current status is. So if you kind of want the answer, uh, we have a more definitive paper that is available through our website. To that point, though, uh, when you look at the the efficacy of something like this and the cost, and, and for those that are saying, well, you know, maybe another camera angle on another camera would do that, but if you've got like a tactical unit, I'm talking in the hypothetical here now, Chief, that is responding to a situation, not all of those officers are going to have cameras, are they? You can't. You simply can't afford to put one on every officer. Well, it depends on the jurisdiction, and most of them are running small pilot projects. Uh, some agencies do have them. Uh, when I did see the Pulse nightclub shooting, they did have uh, a number of officers, both ERU, our emergency response unit, they call them, you know, team or things like that. Um, SWAT, SWAT teams. SWAT, yeah. Um, but uh, again... Uh, yeah, but down in the States, the federal government gives money for a lot of that stuff. Well, and you've raised a good point uh, that the, you know, president uh, provided funds for that, so they're, they're using it. Some of the officers uh, in smaller jurisdictions are funding it themselves. And, uh, but yeah, it's it's costly undertaking. It's really not so much the equipment because many of the manufacturers are offering it up almost for free. What it is is the management of the digital evidence that flows from there. And then the redaction, as I say, how do you handle it? If you're in a hospital setting and you've got it on and you're filming things, you may be including charts and people's privacy. So it's, it's a very convoluted issue. Uh, the Privacy Commissioner has not come out with a uh, firm position other than you need to have robust policies, you need to ensure that you're guaranteeing the rights under the Constitution. So it is very complex. But you mentioned some jurisdictions that are already doing this. How are they dealing with those challenges? Well, some have policies, but many do not. And that's one of the things that we're looking at is if you're going to uh, introduce it, you should know when you turn it on or off, audio or video, uh, how do you handle the volume of material? Who reviews it? Supervision of that, redaction. Uh, it requires a complex system. As you know, when we submitted our costs, many of those costs are people who will be doing all those jobs post-recording of the material. And then one of the problems, too, with battery life is because it's got kind of like a often a 90-second or two-minute default where it'll backtrack once you turn it on. So it's always kind of recording. And the theory there being, oh, okay, this is going sideways. Better turn my camera on because you may have just been doing, you know, walking down the street and so suddenly something happens. Turn it on, has to backtrack to two minutes. That's led to some of those difficulties with uh, battery life. So to your earlier point, it needs to be reliable, needs to be consistent, has to follow policy. And, and with the, the pilot projects that are going on right now, obviously this will give me more information. Uh, the idea of cost is, is obviously a factor in this too, but I, I have to think that in the passage of time that that's going to go down too. I think a, a former police officer I was talking to on the program a couple of weeks ago about this said it's like VCRs. I mean, when they first came out back in the uh, you know the early 80s, it cost almost $1,000 to get a VCR. And by the time 
Nobody uses them now, obviously. Everything's on Netflix. But, I mean, they were about 70, 50, 60 bucks, I guess. Yeah. So the, the technology will be improved, I guess, and it's going to make it a more efficient system. Well, and we found the same thing. We were part of a pilot project for in-car video in the early 90s that was sponsored by uh, then the Ministry of the Solicitor General. And uh, then you've got replacement parts, you've got ongoing maintenance, you have the storage, uh, because when you're looking at the retention of these things, you may not know what's relevant for some time. So are you able to go back, access that information, and then you have to store it somewhere. So that's either a server or a, or a cloud application, and we've talked about that in terms of cloud applications. We could go to one of the major uh, you know, companies that sponsors that, but often they're American companies. That means that Homeland Security applies. That means that we don't necessarily have, um, or they have access to that information uh, through Homeland Security. Well, that raises evidentiary issues and that raises privacy issues. So it, it is more complex than it appears at first glance. We've got about a minute left here. In those jurisdictions where cameras are being used right now, are they considered by the courts to be a reliable source of information? Uh, what I'd say relative to that, because I don't think we've got anything, you always have to look at the evidence you've got in front of you. So uh, use the analogy of the Bosman investigation here, uh, where we had video clips that were put together in terms of people coming and going. Uh, you even see it in the video clips that they're playing now in the, uh, in the trial that's going on in Toronto. So whether it's the judge or the jury have to weigh out the relevance of that material, is it accurate? Uh, they're testing the evidence in terms of the disposal and the eliminator. Was it, in fact, human bones or was it animal bones? I know that went on yesterday. That requires expert evidence. So uh, the reliability is always in question. Uh, the evidentiary value is always in question. So whether it's the jury or the judge considering it, they have to give due weight to whatever it is they're being presented with. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is with us here in studio. But uh, I was amazed uh, to hear on CHMO News the other day about another rash of counterfeit money. This is something that uh, I guess a lot of businesses and, and even average citizens, Chief, maybe don't pay a whole lot of attention to. But it's, it's a real problem in, in not just this community but all over the place. Yeah, and some of it has to do with the, uh, although with the new polymer bills it's harder, uh, but you can even pass the older bills because of the quality of printers. And then I got 3D printers. Uh, but I know in our spot that we ran yesterday, you know, texture is a big thing with the raised uh, print. Uh, certainly the hollow windows, some of the more um, defined features like a 20, uh, very small in uh, in the picture window that you can determine if you hold it up to the light. So there's lots of security features. And if you go online, for those who do, um, the Bank of Canada will distribute those. I know I've got a number of kits and have looked at it myself to see what are the features. So, um, yeah, it's it's a recurring problem, particularly with American bills. And I was just saying uh, the other day, you know, they all look the same to me because they're all the same color. And I'm sure that the Americans are saying, well, your money looks fake because of all the colors you have. Uh, but the problem is if you're not used to handling it or if you handle it quickly, and in difficult circumstances where that money is coming in very quickly, you don't have time, you're trying to service the customer. It's taking that time and knowing the features um, because, you know, quite often it could be the person doesn't know it's counterfeit, is passing it along because they haven't checked either. So, yes, it's rampant, and you can see the economic loss as a result. The polymer bills have decreased the level of counterfeiting, but, yes, it can still be done. Interestingly enough, uh, back when I was on city council years ago, I remember going to a Concession Street BIA meeting, and uh, one of the officers that was in charge of uh, a fraud, I guess, was was there, kind of giving a, a tutorial on on what to look for, etc., with with money. And, and I think at first blush, a lot of people think, oh yeah, the, the counterfeit stuff. They they're doing thousand dollar bills and 
uh, stuff like that, and you know, five hundred dollar bills. They're doing tens and twenties. Why? That's that's small potatoes, isn't it? Well, it's more common currency for one thing. People don't tend to look at it as closely. When you get a fifty or a hundred, you're thinking as a as a proprietor, you're thinking if this one's no good. I could really be out a lot. Um, so the tens and twenties are productive. And again, you, you pass a number of them. Uh, you know, you bought by a small purchase, three bucks. So you got the purchase plus you got the $17 and change with real money. So uh, that's often how they're distributed and passed in those smaller denominations. Not usually fives because they're not worth it, but certainly twenties, tens. Now fifties are becoming more common um, in, in trade. So those are being used as well. But yes, even the hundreds can be, but usually people are a little more cautious and you'll see it with uh, business owners as well, right? We will either not accept fifties or hundreds or uh, they do the check on them. What's the protocol? Uh, if if I and uh, maybe unbeknownst to me, I I, I was given one. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and these things circulate pretty quickly. I mean, you know, they can make their way into ATMs. You could get a, a change at a store, whatever the case might yeah. be. But if another merchant decides that that's that's a counterfeit bill, and some of them, as you say, can put them under a light and make that determination, yep. I'm out the money, aren't I? Uh, you are. Uh, for us, for an enforcement purpose, so and often where you have serial numbers that are uh, printed off and it's the same well, serial part number. Part of that is you want to talk to me first. Yes, <laughs> I do. So, yeah, we want to know about it because we still need to do the intervention. And often it'll be a spree, so to speak. So you'll see these passed. And then we can get that information out to uh, the owners of the businesses to check for those serial numbers. Or we, uh, just as we've done, we'll do a public information piece so that people are more aware and not. And then you just say, "Well, I'm not taking that bill." Um, you know, theoretically, you could seize it, contact us. You don't want to be getting in a fist fight with whoever it is. Um, if it's a person who doesn't know, then they're out the money, and you haven't paid the, uh, you know, given them the change. So yes, we do want to know. Please report it to us. Um, yes, you're out the money. I get that. Um, quick uh, email here: b kelly at nine hundred chml dot com from Gord. Uh, says a couple of quick questions. Uh, do the police ever park unmanned cruisers along the Red Hill Parkway to deter speeding? Uh, why not move some of those cruisers from station parking lots to the parkway? And part B, uh, surprised to see that there was a ride check uh, on Bay Street across from the uh, arena at 10 o'clock th- in the morning the other day. Seemed like a strange time for a road check. Uh, was it a successful one? Maybe you could answer both of those for Gord. Yeah, so the first one on, on, uh, on you know unoccupied vehicles, uh, and I know the OBB did that. Uh, often they'll suffer damage. Um, people get to know fairly quickly. Uh, we'd much rather have a real officer stopping uh, speeding vehicles. That has a deterrent effect. Uh, I haven't seen any studies that show that's particularly effective. So and it also requires somebody to drive out, drop it off, drive it back. Uh, it's not particularly effective. I'd much rather that the officers spend that time to actually do enforcement or answer other calls. On the second piece, and you know, I, I was breath tech for eight years. Uh, just as an analogy, some of the highest readings I ever attained from subjects were Monday mornings at about 8 a.m. So what's happened is they've drank overnight, sleep for a couple hours, get up and drive. But, and this is what the particularly high readings, which always struck me as odd. If I asked them what they consumed, they generally told me, and it'd go something like this. Well, I had a 2-4 uh, yesterday, and then I had a Mickey, and I finished off with a 26er, and you're thinking... Holy cow, like uh, one, the ability to handle that much alcohol, but also with readings that are, say, 380 milligrams or 400 milligrams, there's a couple of things. One, that can be a life-threatening emergency from alcohol poisoning, and we often will take people into the hospital. But again, uh, these are people who quite often were, uh, you know, alcoholics, uh, had grown a certain tolerance, but certainly uh, their driving behavior showed it. So Monday mornings, after the weekend, Sunday mornings. So we do deploy uh, at different hours. We also deploy in a variety of locations. And the whole premise is you never really know where you'll be stopped. 
And that is much like we're talking about with uh, un, you know, occupied vehicles being parked. It's as much a deterrent as it is a catching. So we'd much rather deter the activity in the first place. And I talked about it yesterday. Uh, what the gentleman is referring to is our, our launch with um, the Hamilton Bulldogs. And they're giving out uh, tickets to, you know, complimentary tickets to one of three games. Uh, we think it's a great partnership. They understand the carnage that can happen as a result. Uh, the big thing I'm stressing this year, again, particularly with uh, the legalization of cannabis on the horizon, is we've always had legislation that you can be arrested for impaired by drug or alcohol, drug or alcohol, um, or combination thereof. And we have what are called drug recognition experts who will do that testing to determine what that drug is that's in your system. So both of the things are deterrents. Uh, relative to the uh, parked cars, not particularly effective. Relative to ride lanes at any time of the day, and we do it all year, too. It's not just at the festive season. We do it all year. Well, let's talk about the festive season uh, because it is upon us, and uh, that's that's something that we need to talk about. Uh, you ramp it up considerably, of course, over the holiday season, and, and you're right. I mean, you've told me in, from your past experience, and Klaus Wagner, who's been on the show many times, of course, traffic specialist with Hamilton Police Services, has said uh, some of the people with the highest readings he gets from breathalyzers are at like 8 o'clock in the morning. That's right. Uh, they're still drunk from, yep. from the night before, and they're driving kids to school and doing a number of other things like that. It's pretty scary, actually. It Which, is, and, and people think, well, I got a pretty quick rate of elimination. And I, I, I slept for three or four hours. Yeah. I got it out of my system. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't, and physiologically, you only eliminate at a certain rate, and you can't accelerate the rate. The other thing is, if you're heavy because you uh, have a high fat composition, uh, alcohol goes into water-based tissues. So if you happen to have a high fat, it's not being absorbed in those tissues. And the leading one that it's absorbed to and the most water content is your brain. So that's where the alcohol tends to go. And then, of course, you eliminate it, you know, biologically, uh, but it's at a certain rate. So, yeah, uh, you may think you're, you're not, but, and I, I mean, I wasn't making up that, you know, consumption rate. Like, really, a 2.4, a Mickey, and a 26, and you're thinking, man, I'd be passed out on the ground. But for certain people, that may be their daily intake. Do you have to stop at a ride program? I mean, how many times, have, I'm sure you've seen over the years, where somebody sees up a couple of blocks and says, oh, my God, there's a ride program. I'm going to hang a right here. And we normally set up for that, and then we have vehicles that will go and stop. And yes, you do. And yes, it's been tested up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, some people viewed it as an abrogation of their constitutional rights. And the courts determined, uh, the Supreme Court, that because of the public safety risks through impaired driving, this was a reasonable limitation, and it is an arbitrary stop. In fact, that's how they fashioned it. Uh, we're not stopping because we think you've been driving uh, while you've been drunk, but we have the ability to stop, check on that. And if you're not, you know, you're going to get a complimentary ticket to Bulldogs or we've handed out scrapers or a whole variety of things, coupon booklets through the years. And, you know, having done lots of ride lanes, people are usually pretty receptive to that. The other thing is, for me, it's a pretty positive experience because the general population supports us in this initiative. They don't want to face uh, impaired drivers on the road either. So we actually get quite a bit of public, uh, you know, positive commentary when we do these. In, in a situation like that, uh, uh, how many units do you have out on a given night? Say uh, it's December 10th, getting into the holiday season right now. You do increase them significantly over what you would do ordinarily. Though. Um, actually, we've gone to a strategy where we deploy all year long. Um, and we do hundreds of thousands of stops in a year. 
Uh, we will do them simultaneously in all three divisions. It depends on availability of staff. We don't just kind of do a great big one. Uh, we will do them in a variety of locations. Uh, people often think, well, I'll travel the back roads. How do you well, pick them? How do you pick the locations? Well, you Without giving away state secrets here. Well, there, there's two different kinds. One, you can do it for high visibility in a, an extremely busy location. Other ones, like I've talked about, you may do rural back roads where you know people are trying to duck off the major highways or the major roadways. And then people are like, whoa. Uh, another one that gets people is the on and off ramps uh, onto the Red Hill or elsewhere. And quite often we'll pick a spot where you've got nowhere to go except ahead relative to your I'm going to turn off here. So we try and be strategic on that piece. But we also try and ensure that our officers are safe uh, because we've had, I've been there when people have driven through the ride lanes and you have to pursue them. And, uh, you know, you don't know why they're not stopping. It may not be just because they're impaired. They may have warrants outstanding, they may be a suspended driver, they may have drugs in the car, uh, they may have firearms in the vehicle. So, you know, when we're stopping in those interactions, it can be a high-risk situation. And, and that's the other element to remember here. When you uh, move into a ride program, uh, they're looking for everything. It's not just have you been dri- drinking and driving. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to, you know, like the old Cheech and Chong movies where the smoke is billowing out of the vehicle, but I have actually seen that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of gives it away. And, uh, yeah, but we're looking for a variety of offenses. And, it, you know, can include things like, uh, you know, one of my pet peeves, uh, children not properly seat belted or with child restraint systems in the car. reason it bothered me was the child doesn't have a way to address the situation, but the adult certainly does. And there's certainly enough knowledge about seatbelt laws. I mean, it dates back to 1976 that, uh, you know, you want to make sure your kids are properly secured. Last year when you and I talked about this, the, the number of people that were caught drinking and driving during this program had gone up. Uh, is, that, is that because you're being more diligent or are there actually more people that are d- being stupid? Um, well, I, I don't know if I can agree to the second one, uh, but... Well, I mean, everybody, <laughs> anybody that doesn't know that you're not supposed to drink and drive. I mean, I understand that there can some, there are some psychological things and some people could have problems. I get that. But by the same token, I mean, if, if you know, you mentioned about somebody who may be an alcoholic or have a dependency on us, just don't get behind the wheel. Well, really, it's as simple as that. You have so many alternatives that you can do. Take a taxi, Uber, uh, range a ride with a friend, sleep over... Uh, I think, you know, and the age group we're seeing for impaired driving is not our younger cohort, which a lot of people would think. It's actually between 30 and 50 years old. So whatever the reason is, you know, I'm entitled to drive. I'm not sure what the psychology is, uh, but that is uh, one of the leading areas. You know, I think of my own kids. They talk about, okay, how are we going to get there? Designated driver. Okay, I'm not driving. I'm going to park it, and I'm going to take an Uber home, or I'm going to take a taxi. Um, You know, I think that's been a shift in the thinking, to address your, I'll call it a stupid comment, I'm not really sure what the psychology is for, you know, I'm okay. It's just, you know, five or six drinks and I'll be all right. I can handle this. Well, you may, but I mean, we see it with distracted driving with a whole range of other things. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to handle eight or nine things, but sometimes you're dealing with 10 or 12. And then when that comes along, suddenly everything falls apart. And then, oh, geez, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, well, think about that ahead of time and make the right choice. <sighs> Officers don't give you a whole lot of flexibility in a situation like this, do they? Uh, I think because of the public safety component. Yeah. You know, if you've been consuming, and it may mean the administering of a roadside test uh, for alcohol. Uh, it may mean uh, the provision of certain physical tests, or you may get arrested straight for impaired, and then you go to check either for the drug recognition or the intoxilizer. So uh, I think it's not so much officers. Uh, we're a reflection of the society. There's not a tolerance from society, in my view, and certainly the courts, around this issue of impaired driving because, you know, it's the old story and 
Chief DeCare mentioned this many times. It's 100% preventable. You don't have to get behind the wheel. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Let me uh, get to, to Dave, who's been waiting patiently. Dave, thanks so much. Go ahead for the chief. Hello, Dave. Dave, are you there? Nope, I guess we lost Dave, unfortunate. Okay, we maybe try to hook up with him a little bit later on. Uh, something I did want to mention, because you talked about this a few weeks ago, and, and the time for it is actually going to be tonight, uh, this recruitment meeting uh, to, to talk about uh, the, the composition of Hamilton Police Services right now. We had uh, Cameron Boddy on the program a week or two ago uh, talking about the concern that the Muslim Association and other groups, by the way, have had about this, Aboriginals and others about this. And there's, there are a lot of stories right now about composition, uh, who's being asked, who's actually on police services right now. Uh, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, so some of the st- statistics that are not well known is uh, one of the things is Globe and Mail did a, a survey um, last year and uh, in the country for Canada, we are second in the, in, in the, you know, across the country for reflecting our specific community. So, you know, if we were to compare against Toronto, that would be different. But for our community, we're most closely representative in terms of the demographics. Relative to the composition in senior command, currently we have 25% of our senior sworn officers are female. Uh, relative to diversity, we've seen promotions in the senior command with diverse candidates as well. And again, you know, we respect the rights of our candidates to either disclose or not disclose, both in their ethnicity, ethnicity, cultural background. So we're not naming specific people, but we're certainly alive to the issue. And this um, recruiting information tonight, which is going to be up at the mosque, who we've worked in partnership for many years, it's going to involve ourselves, the OPP, RCMP, fire service, and uh, the paramedic service to look at recruiting, because we're all interested in reflecting the community we serve. So we've been making strides there relative to our gender composition. uh, We're above the national average uh, in all ranks. And I do know as well in all ranks, we have other than, um, you know, specifically chief or deputy currently, but we're undergoing a deputy's process. We'll see what happens. Um, We were, you know, we have diverse candidates in each of those roles up until including inspector. The, uh, I I guess the obvious question, are you hiring? It's it's one thing to have a meeting. Yeah. But I think I, I know a number of uh, people that have been on the service now for a number of years that are either at retirement age or, yeah. or past it right now. So there's always that attrition. Exactly. And it's straight de- demographics. If you go back to David Foote's uh, you know, book, Boom, Bust, and Echo, you can predict those in advance uh, where the demographics are going to be. We're at the tail end of the boomer generation, depending if you take 1961 or 64 as your end date for the boomers. Uh, they are reaching retirement age, you know, between 30 and 35 years, generally speaking. And uh, so, yes, we're in a position right now of seeing a great amount of change in our organization. We have planned for it. Uh, so we're not as uh, difficult as some other areas in terms of trying to fill those uh, spots. But, yeah, it's a good time to be looking at a career in policing. Very quickly, let me get Paul onto the program for Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Go ahead, Paul. Hi, Eric. How are you today? I'm very well. Um, my question, um, obviously speeding, it's, a, it's an event. Is there anything about drivers who are doing well below the speed limit? And if there is, <clears throat> why I, I don't see why it's not being enforced. And the reason I bring this up is I'm seeing <clears throat> more and more. I'm seeing um, you know drivers you know anywhere from five to maybe fifteen below the speed limit, and it causes it causes people to take unnecessary risks maybe aggressive driving, whatever, um, passing when they shouldn't be passing, cutting it close. Is, is there anything for driving 
too slow? Paul, I'm going to let you go, and I'll let the chief answer that, so you can listen to the answer on the radio. Thanks for the call. Yeah, and thanks, Paul, for the question. And I have actually, I was in traffic for a number of years. I have stopped a number of people for unnecessary slow driving. Uh, it has to be fairly pronounced in terms of what the court requirements are. So if you're 5 or 10 below the limit, keeping in mind it's a limit, and it's not necessarily affecting traffic, you could, for example, be looking for an address or something like that. If the premise is, well, I should do the 50K, well, I'd argue that it's probably safer to slow down a bit if you're looking for an address. That could be 10 or 15 below. It has to be pronounced in necessary slow driving, like I say, in terms of the courts. Um, yes, it can happen. Relative to the responsibility of your actions or the other drivers who are taking those unnecessary risks, um, I will often preach the, you know, tenet of patience here is uh, it's probably not a good idea to breach other laws just because you've got somebody who's driving whatever manner they are. Generally speaking, it'll resolve uh, fairly quickly, other than if you're on a two-lane road uh, up north and it's going on forever, but you'll have opportunities to pass usually and to do so safely. So, yes, you can be charged. Yes, there's a provision in the Highway Traffic Act, uh, but it has to be pronounced. Thanks so much for the call and to everybody and uh, to those that emailed and tweeted on this one as well. Uh, and thank you, Chief. Good to see you again. We'll uh, see you back here, I guess, in a couple of weeks. Very good, Bill, and I, I hope you haven't passed your man cold, nothing personal, And but I do wish you the best in your recovery. I wouldn't wish anything, just on anybody, anyway. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gerd. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.